if you've been in academic Twitter for the past number of weeks, seeing that there's quite a few Indian academics talking about the state of things in India and the way that this hasn't been adequately recognized by higher education. And there's a sort of parasitic way in which Western higher education depends upon international students, particularly from China and India, to basically fund the whole apparatus of higher education, and yet has been woefully inadequate to meet how um, these particular students and indeed faculty and staff are being impacted by COVID, by, by genocide, by so many other conditions. And I'm also really grateful in this regard to my friend today, Shaista, who has illuminated for me a lot over the past couple of years, the rise of Hindu nationalism, the way that casteism operates, not just in the diaspora and in India, but also particularly in academia. And so I'm really happy to invite Shaista to the show today. Um, thanks, Shaista. Thank you so much, Zain, for having me. I'm, I'm really excited, but also nervous, but really happy that we have this opportunity to be in conversation. Thank you. So I work as assistant professor of critical Muslim studies, Department of Ethnic Studies here at University of California, San Diego. Um, and I come from Toronto. That's where I did my PhD and just trying to find my communities and a sense of, you know, some place here in California. This is my third year. And yeah. And so what and what do you work on uh, in critical Muslim studies? What does that field entail? Um, yes. So in, in terms of my work, I, I am not sure if I have a very clear answer. Um, up until I, I think a few months ago, I used to be able to answer that and tell people that, you know, my work is very interdisciplinary in nature. I'm having I'm going through an existential crisis, I feel right now where I'm really struggling with answering this question. But I will say that, you know, my work is focused on questions of complicity. It began with thinking about what is the place of uh, non-Black racialized uh, settlers or, you know, uh, immigrants uh, on, on this on stolen land. And so that one question then took me into like, you know, uh, it, it took me all over. It took me back to my history. So it brought me to connections, uh, you know, with my, uh, it brought me to write about my mother's people, right, which was in Bengal. And so that one question that began with this question of the place of settler of color, non-black settler of color, that figure splintered into so many different histories and figures that, you know, that dissertation became about so many different spatialities, so many different temporalities, so many structures of violence. So I think a simple, um, you know, a, a more a simpler answer to what my work is, uh, I, I can say that the questions that I that I ask, they draw on the anti-caste slash Dalit, Black, Indigenous, and particular kinds of transnational feminist scholarship. I don't know if that answers the question on uh, what is it that I do. No, I think it. I think it shows sort of like the richness and complexity because. Uh, you're sort of speaking across so many different areas um, that personally, I'm also very interested as a, a non-Black um, settler of color, also from Toronto. Um, so, and I, and I know a little bit of the difficulty of having to read across so many different intellectual traditions and the necessity of doing that because otherwise the sort of siloing of the different fields of knowledge allows some of us to continue to be complicit structurally and individually. And yeah. It just, it becomes a really easy way to absolve us by just saying, oh, it's all just so complex. But as probably our listeners know, the way that the gesture to complexity can be a way of just completely dismissing any sort of critical engagement about politics generally. 
And you were also going to define critical Muslim studies as a field because that's part of your title. So the way, you know, critical Muslim studies, I think it's, uh, it, you know, I think it is, I, I think my position, uh, you know, the official title is one of the very few or maybe the only position in critical Muslim studies per se in North America. So I also feel a lot of pressure and, you know, people sometimes come to me asking me, what is it that I think of critical Muslim studies? So I do want to say that, you know, I am not, I'm, I don't know if I want to exactly define what critical Muslim studies is because, because then, you know, it allows institutions to, to take up that definition and do work that actually is, uh, mm-hmm. that actually erases those other, you know, people, those other histories, those other sites that I've not thought of, right? Um, and I think institutionalizing anything uh, takes away from the radicality anyways. On the one hand, when, by necessity, your work is antidisciplinary, but suddenly because you're part of the institution, yes. you have given, had this label given to you and then sort of feeling the tension between your work and the way that it has to be made visible. Question of legibility and how things become legible in academia. It's, it's you know, th- that's such an important question to ask, but it's also that, you know, sometimes when things are not legible, sometimes when we say, oh, I don't know, I think those are better, more productive answers because then that allows us to keep asking questions rather than close off that space for questions and just keep coming up with different answers that, might not be that productive in terms of the, you know, in terms of interdisciplinary work, which is also about connecting academia with the streets, for example, right? And so, um, I so it, it so in order to not make critical Muslim studies part of the ivory tower, even though it's part of academia, I I always say that I struggle with how to respond to that question. Well, I guess on uh, another aspect of this problem of legibility, uh, as I mentioned, I. Uh, like many people in the West, are incredibly ignorant of caste as a concept. And so I had invited Shaista today to mm-hmm. explain some things that some some of my listeners may roll their eyes because it's very basic, but I do think it's really important to talk about precisely because there's many of us who don't understand those traditions that then end up being ignorant about the ways that histories of, of oppression are continuing. And I'd say that perhaps it's particularly urgent because, of course, as our listeners may know, there was a very uh, influential and best-selling book that came out this past year by Isabel Wilkerson called Cast that tried to make comparisons between the caste system to uh, to American racialization and people who work on caste people who work on race thinking about colonialism found that very contentious and so yes what would your uh, 101 explanation of caste be and sort of lead us through the complexities of something that maybe a lot of us are ignorant about Thank you. Thank you for that question, Zion. I also want to say that, um, you know, for me, caste is an important part of the analytics that I follow in critical Muslim studies. And, you know, there are very many different ways of doing Muslim studies. But as a South Asian, uh, I, you know, I cannot talk about anti-Blackness. I cannot talk about anti-Indigeneity without, for me, at least beginning with this question of caste and caste-based violence. And so so thank you for asking me that question. In in my understanding, caste is uh, one of the oldest forms of dehumanization, um, you know, of, of forming a hierarchy of human lives, of the power to let live under very asphyxiated conditions and kill with impunity. So in order to understand caste hierarchies, you know, you have to imagine a, a pyramid that is divided in four and 
at the top of that uh, pyramid are the Brahmins, who I'm going to define by occupation because caste is very much about occupation and endogamy, right? So marrying within one's own caste, eating with people of one's own caste, for example. So at the very top of the hierarchy are the Brahmins, uh, who have historically um, and, and continue to work as priests, as teachers, as professors. So in North American academia, people who um, you understand as racialized or as South Asian, right, as subjects of racial injury are actually many, many most are either Brahmins or at least Savarna. Savarna means upper caste. So there's that. Mm -hmm. And then below Brahmins, the other upper caste are the Kshatriyas, and they have been the warriors, the kings, the rulers, um, right? So Brahmins and Kshatriyas work together because like a Brahmin is supposed to advise the king, which is Kshatriya. And below that are the Vaishyas, which are the merchants and traders. And then the very at the very bottom, right? So people say low caste, and I, I like to use the word lowered caste because it's not their fault that they've been constructed as such are people who form the majority of India, which is Bahujans. And Bahu means many and Jans means people, so many people, right? So they are the majority. So Bahujans who are also known as Shudra, um, and those are the peasant category. Outside the caste system though, right? So outside of those four pyramids, and one thing I also want to say is that, you know, caste system is, is, the cre is a creation of Brahminical myth, right? And so there's this idea that, um, you know, Priests or, or the Brahmins came from Brahma's head, Brahma, the god, his head, the, the kings and warriors are supposed to be strong. The Kshatriyas came from the shoulders. And then um, the, the merchant caste, which is the Vaishyas, came from the torso and Bahujans came from the feet of, of Brahma. And then outside of that, though, outside of the caste system are, you know, the Adivasis, who are the indigenous peoples of uh, South Asia and then the Dalits, and the word Dalit actually means downtrodden or crushed, right? Dalits were pejoratively, previously pejoratively known as untouchables. And so, um, and, and, you know, there's this idea that, uh, you know, the myth is that the myth which has been codified and has, uh, you know, repercussions in terms of life and death is that Dalits have been ordained by Brahma to do bonded agricultural labor and manual scavenging work. So, um, you know, even today, this this work is solely associated with Dalit people in all countries of South Asia, right? And I I know about India and Pakistan for sure and Nepal. So for as little as um, one rupees, which is you know 0 0.013 uh, in U.S. dollar in U.S. currency per day, approximately 1.3 million Dalits in India work in manual scavenging, right? So that's cleaning the gutters, cleaning the bathrooms, cleaning, um, you know, all sorts of like. Uh, encounters with filth that's a responsibility uh the the professional responsibility of dalits so um so you know so caste apartheid uh, i think one of the important things to understand is that you know people say oh there's caste in pakistan too there's caste amongst christians too sure there is but an important thing to understand is that caste is religiously codified exclusion in what is you know benignly known as hinduism but the actual word is brahmanism right and brahmanism became hinduism under colonialism and there is no Hinduism outside of Brahminism. And so, um, you know, this, this Brahminism that ordains people to take up occupations strictly based on their on their caste is, is uh, you know, really, I mean, that's the violence of it, right? Um, I mm -hmm. also want to say, uh, you know, I also want to say that um, uh, this, this Dalit, uh, you know, this, this author whose work I really respect, this 
um, a Dalit, Indian Dalit scholar uh, writer, Kumut Bhavre, uh, who was the first ever Dalit scholar of, of uh, Sanskrit, um, she said that, you know, although I, and I quote her here, and I think this quote is so important for people to really understand how it is not possible to get rid of caste, no matter where you go, um, even in death, you cannot get rid of caste, right? And so she said, and I quote her, and Kumut Pavre says, although I try to forget my caste, it is impossible to forget. And then I remember an expression I heard somewhere, what comes by birth but cannot be cast off by dying, that's caste, right? And, and you know, one of the examples, and I'm, I'm so, you know, this is a humorous example, but one that is a really telling example is this is a few years ago. Um, I can't remember now, 14, 2014 or 2015, um, there was this, uh, you know, Indian gay activist, Harish Ayer, Ayer is upper caste, um, whose mother was celebrated as being so radical for posting um, a, a matrimonial ad for her uh, for her gay son. And so the ad read something like seeking 25 to 40 well-placed, animal-loving, vegetarian, which is a caste marker because, you know, uh, certain Brahmins and uh, upper caste people do not eat meat and meat is associated and, you know, responsible for lynchings of Muslims and Dalit Bahujans in India, even, you know, today in the present moment. So it says, seeking 25 to 40 well-placed, animal-loving, vegetarian groom for my son who works with an NGO, caste no bar, although a year preferred, Right. And so, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's hilarious, but it also says so much that no matter how woke you are, how radical you are, how non-binary, non-conforming uh, in, in terms of other identities you might be, you remain casteist if you are, mm -hmm. uh, you know, upper caste, if you are Savarna. So, yeah, just wanted to give that example. Um, there's this, uh, you know, popular saying by Dr. Uh, B.R. Ambedkar, who was a, uh, you know, a Dalit jurist, economist, philosopher, scholar, writer politician, Dalit visionary, he said that wherever Hindus go, they take their caste with them. So, And so to sort of put this into um, a frame for our listeners, uh, thanks to Shaista, I came across this one important um, GoFundMe run by a Dalit friend of Shaista's that has to, had to do with like sending money to the Dalits who are now being responsible for the overwhelming number of of cremations that have to happen in India because of the COVID-19 crisis getting so bad. Um, and so that's, that's on the, uh, the most recent example. But I'd also say that uh, another way that it sort of is a part of academic life in a way that uh, those of us who are not part of it are not aware of is, as Shaisa said, like because of, of the structuring of the different um, caste groups, I'm sure that's the wrong phrase, like there's the way in which we automatically would see people in a Western context as like having more melanin. So we say like, oh, there are other people of color. They're also dispossessed like us. And yet um, many of the South Asians who are in academia are perhaps in the, the sort of hilariously affronted position of talking about themselves in post-colonial subaltern terms, but are not actually interrogating the fact that they are part of the Brahmin caste, which is particularly uh responsible for maintaining this entire system of domination uh, no so i want you know one thing that i wanted to say and um i i was talking to um i was talking to an indian muslim friend of mine just the other day you know in talking about caste um you know i'm also caste oppressed and muslim as well um so so i'll say this right like 
sometimes in the west you know we are we are seeing this shift where people are excited by people i mean westerners you know either white people or just westerners in general are non south asian westerners are getting excited by this idea of caste right and they are beginning to understand or at least in theory beginning to understand what caste oppression means but the thing though is you know the thing that i find really problematic in in that um is that and even when even when how woke people were talking about the debts of dalits in india and that they were the crematorium workers who were not even getting any money or any protective gear as they were um you know burning and burying tons of people whose family members didn't want to touch them right um one thing that you know is very was very clear to me or becoming clearer is that even in that there was no place to mourn for muslims who are majority caste oppressed in india right pasmanda muslims which is caste oppressed muslims there was no place to mourn the muslims right and so that erasure of muslims is just so stark and e- even here right like i think people would westerners would um you know be be supportive westerners would want to be supportive of me as a caste oppressed person rather than me as a muslim and so i just want to say that even in this anti casteist woke politics of sometimes you know even caste oppressed uh, non muslims what gets erased are the lives and deaths of muslims you know whether in india or pakistan i mean pakistan which is my country comes on the radar only ever as a terrorist state right so nobody wants to talk about the you know the dalits that are dying in pakistan the muslims that are dying in pakistan um and and nobody wants to talk about how in the initial days of of coronavirus in india um there was actually you know this hindu nationalist campaign which became common sense in india um and so the coronavirus was called corona jihad right and at that point muslims were being blamed for the pandemic and even today even today and i posted the story just a few days ago or maybe a week ago that muslims are being turned away from hospitals and there's no mention of that so i also wanted to say that you know you cannot be anti casteist you cannot be in solidarity with dalits if you're also not in solidarity with muslims majority of whom are caste oppressed so um i just thought it was important for me to mention this that you know while islamophobia continues to rampant i see some people take up anti casteist work and i find that really problematic thank you for like giving us a little bit of a sense of the complexity of of what you're dealing with and i was wondering if i we sort of mentioned the way that again like the the major figures of postcolonial theory as it emerged in the 90s had this sort of uh, this, the, under, the casteism was was unrecognized part and i have to say that indeed that was the way that i was taught about postcolonialism and like oh here's homi baba here's gachi spivak and helping us theorize the sort of complexity of the postcolonial condition etc cetera, etc cetera. and i only learned about mm-hmm. that they are brahmins and the way that casteism um sort of infiltrates that uh, mode of thought much much later um and so i was wondering if you could like to give us a little bit of backstory on that and how it permeates that form of what's called postcolonial thought and maybe that's a reason why a lot of people who might be considered you know technically postcolonial do not want to be part of postcolonial studies thank you so thank you for for that question right um you know one of one of the important quotes that i always think about in in this context because i do write about the place of caste in subaltern studies and i wrote about it in my dissertation as well and i'm working on it for my book too 
you know, one of the quotes that, you know, is really important for me in my work is um, a quote by Ijaz Ahmed. And Ijaz Ahmed said, and I'm going to quote him here, it's one sentence. And he said, colonialism is not held is not is held responsible not only for its own cruelties but conveniently in, enough for ours too right so there is this mm. idea um that you know class mm. came to india with british with british raj and i want to make yes. things, i want to make this one thing very clear which is not true right colonialism or slash british raj did not bring caste to india caste has a history of 2500 years in India, right? Colonialism came like whenever it came a few hundred years ago. So, you know, caste is not a foreign import um, to to India, right? It wasn't a foreign import to India. So, so, so what I'm saying is that, you know, a point which people like Nicholas Dirks, for example, they miss is that, you know, when they argue that caste came with colonialism, that that is not true. But, you know, what I will say is what is true is that um, what colonialism did do is give more legitimacy to caste and caste-based violence as British, uh, you know, who were in bed with Brahmins, right? Like British supremacy could increase only because of Brahmins um, and their networks. So what, what, so, you know, as British adopted this policy of non-interference in religious matters, which actually meant in caste matters, they froze caste into an unchanging social institution and helped institutionalize casteism of Brahmanism as Hinduism, which now circulates as a peaceful religion, despite everything about it being warlike and genociding, right? So, I mean, think about the so-called um, post-colonial and subaltern studies of Indian scholars of 1980s, right? How many of us know that, for example, Ranajit Gua, who is known as the founder of subaltern studies comes from a family of landowners, upper caste, of course, who were the beneficiaries of the permanent settlement project of British colonialism. How many of us know, right, this, this is important to know. Also, how many of us know that in the very famous essay of Gayatri Chakravarti Spivak's, you know, that is cited everywhere, can the subaltern speak? That subaltern that she talks about, Bhubaneshwari Bhaduri, right, the young woman who took her own life in 1926 Bengal, apparently after a failed attempt at political assassination for which she had promised herself, this so-called subaltern woman who commits suicide while menstruating was Gayatri Spivak's relative, one of her grand aunties. And she literally, right, like Spivak, and, you know, it took me, I was years old when I discovered this and you know, she literally says this. So this is Spivak. She literally says this in an interview. And I quote her here because I have the quote in front of me. And she says, she, Bhadri, the woman who commits suicide, left a letter for my grandmother. I heard her story from my mom, but I did not reveal that the woman in the essay was my great aunt. As a subaltern, completely outside of these structures, she had spoken with her body, but could not be heard. To say the subaltern cannot speak, is like saying there's no justice, end of quote. You know, Spivak has argued, which is laughable, this is maybe a few years ago, um, when this other interview of hers came out, uh, you know, when people started to talk about caste and these, uh, you know, upper caste scholars realized that there was no getting off the hook. She says um, in this interview that she's at the very lower echelons of Brahmin hierarchy, 
right? So she is Brahmin. She cannot deny that. Chakravarti cannot deny that, but she's Brahmin. But she says, oh, you know, everybody who's, you know, is trying to find that place of innocence. And there is no place of innocence in caste hierarchies, right? Um, not for not for Savarnas, I mean. And so, you know, it's like we often used to joke, like, you know, we often used to joke about this, I and my friends, that it's like Mitt Romney saying, oh, I'm not super white because I'm not Christian. Uh, makes no sense to me. Or maybe I think a Mitt Romney part makes more sense than Spivak does at this point, to be honest. But, you know, this is this is what post-colonial studies is. This is what subaltern studies is. Post-colonial studies is casteist. Indian nationalism was casteist. Dalits and Bahujans were already living under a caste apartheid even before British came. And in fact, you know, one of the things that I, I do want to mention, you know, for all of these Savarnas, loud and clear, one thing that they want to mention uh, without making excuses for British Raj, what is important is that colonialism unwittingly gave Dalits access to education. And so Dalit emancipation, to an extent, was one of the unlikely and unplanned consequences of British Raj, of, of colonialism. But these post-colonial and subaltern studies will never talk about, you know, Muslims in India, majority caste oppressed or Dalit um, Bahujans, right? So what I'm saying and what some other caste oppressed scholars have also said is that what has been taken for granted, especially by Western scholars and students reading of subaltern studies from South Asia is an understanding of the subaltern as a colonized figure, marginalized in terms of class, with little attention paid to gender, caste, or indigeneity. There seems to be an assumption, right, mm -hmm. in Western academia that the subaltern is a colonized and racialized figure indigenous to South Asia. But that is not the case. You know, that is, that is, that's just not true, right? Um, but, but, you know, what, I, what I'm saying is that subaltern studies has been paraded as an alternative historical discourse, right? The whole thing is that it has these unique archives, alternative archives, unofficial archives. But, you know, it's, it's as alternative as it might be. It is not alternative. It, it doesn't provide an alternative to caste, right? They, they provincialize Europe with no provincializing of caste discourse. And that means nothing for the majority of Indians who are caste oppressed, right? Um, they need to challenge caste as common sense, but it's naturalized in subaltern studies. Um, and, and these are very, these subalterns are actually really powerful landed people, people with land and economic and cultural capital. Yeah, and, the, and thank you for that. Because again, for, for so many, for, for students, for instance, um, in my context, so in the United Kingdom, the former heart of empire, there is a real desire that they have to address the way that their education hasn't given them any knowledge of the empire and colonialism. And so their corrective that they're reaching for is to say, we want more post-colonial literature, we want post-colonial studies, but little knowing that what seems to be the subversive uh, intellectual discourse that they're turning to in and of itself has is riven with all these structural problems. And so the problems that we need to get uh, is not that I sort of want to work with students in terms of the urge that they have to rectify and to address empire and not to lead them to like the easy solution of post-colonialism, but to further see like the complexities of why might you want to embrace what seems subversive, but in itself ends up perpetuating these other forms of oppression. And I think it's the type of complexity that is 
really important for us to negotiate pedagogically as well as in our research, because it is so easy to sort of just turn from realizing, hey, the West is bad, it, it was colonial, it's imperialist, etc. It's racist. And then to see whatever it is saying that the West is bad has to be then the good thing when it's not quite that simple at all. Yeah. And, you know, and it's just, it's, it's also this thing that our institutions are so like, you know, my university. So, I mean, I, I stay away from every South Asian studies department. I stay away from every, like, you know, South Asia, anything on campus, on any campus. I stayed away in Toronto. I stay away, except for this little pocket in, say, in, in uh, you know, at York University in Toronto, which I did appreciate the spaces that it made for anti-caste conversations. But, you know, I've yet to see very important conversations on caste and Muslimness happening in in these camp on these campuses so for example you know one of my first encounters and one of the first and the only event organized by South Asia initiative on my campus which I attended there they were talking about celebrating um, I can't remember if it was Holi or Diwali right like one of those mm-hmm. um, one of those what what is known as Hindu festivals but I'm gonna say Brahmin festivals and, um, and, you know, it was just so uncomfortable for me standing there because, you know, one has to know that these were Diwali, for example, is a celebration of massacre of Dalits, right? Holi is oh, wow. also a, a celebration of, of assault against um, assault. And, I'm, I, you know, my, my details are getting a little bit fuzzy now. But, you know, but in all of these, it's 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 a celebration of sexual gendered and violence and genocidal violence against Dalits, right? Both these festivals. And so it's just, it's really, I mean, that, you know, the ways in which, the ways in which Zion, that caste and casteism is normalized, right? That everybody participates and Mm -hmm. white people participate and they're very happy. And then you are seen as this hostile, um, you know, Muslim woman who is just angry at everything. And you're like, you are celebrating the, you know, the genocide of, of, of people, of indigenous peoples of South Asia. And I'm not going to participate in that. But, but that's a caste common sense. That's how it circulates. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry that to say that, like, as you're saying, this is when I'm actually learning about what the festivals are were like, because I think for outsiders, definitely like at Cornell, for instance, like, um, Holy became a thing like that, you know, participate for everyone. Here's colorful colors or Diwali, Diwali has a festival of lights. And I think of like the office episode where, um, they do Diwali, maybe in the first or second season pretty early on. And it's just, a pro- it's sort of presented to us as a Hindu thing, but also as like a general like South Asian thing as if, yeah, like it was just sort of just this nice, happy yeah. thing. And I had no idea about the the historical structural violence that is actually celebrating. So thank you for that. Yeah. I'm not sure how, what would you like to close on? Like, what do you want people to know maybe, or to be conscious of like, how can we be, uh, I kind of I do hate this move because it's always the outside of me like but how, what can you do to help but also I think like again speaking of myself like knowing that I'm really ignorant about these things like my recourse has sometimes just been like asking you or other friends like is casteism happening here am I it's like is this actually celebrating Brahmins because I just don't I don't know and I don't want to end up inadvertently reproducing these systems um, and so I, I forgive my na- naive question but yeah do you have any thoughts on what you'd want to see? in terms of allyship? 
Well, I mean, I, I think I, I think, you know, one of the things that one of the things that I have a really difficult time, you know, in, in, in terms of talking to non, non-South Asians who do not know about caste is even even to even to tell them that, look, caste is not about caste violence is not about lateral violence. Right. It is seen as brown people killing brown people or a brown people issue. It's the same that goes for Kashmir, right? Which is which is the world's most brutally occupied, the world's most militarized um, place on earth. And there's this idea that oh, it's brown people's problem, you know, India, Pakistan, something's happening, rivalry, and that's not it, right? Like I mean, the, the world, you know, international Kashmir needs international attention of of the world, and in the same way, right? Like to think of caste as brown people inner fighting, what it does is that it takes away from the fact that caste supremacy is at least 2,000 years older than white supremacy, and it is no less violent, mm-hmm. right? It is no less mm-hmm. violent, and consolidation of colonialisms in South Asia in this large part of the world would not have been possible without without caste supremacy already existing there, right? Um, I would also like people to know, you know, sometimes when I talk to my students or when I go and give talks in my colleagues class, they get like students get really, you know, when you get really, really exhausted and you're like, well, if something has been going on for 2,500 years, what what hope is there now? What can I do? Right. And I want people to understand that, you know, anti-caste consciousness, anti-caste resistance is as old as caste violence. Right. No mm. genocide is complete. Uh, no yeah. violence is easily just accepted by the oppressed without challenge. And so I want people to know that, you know, Dalits are giving you hope that I want people to know that caste oppressed Muslims are giving you hope. So, you know, center our voices, you know, the, the you know, in, in most, uh, you know, from from ch- university chancellors to like, you know, full profs to um, heads of South Asian departments, right? Like all of these Chatterjees and Koslas and Utopadras and Banerjees and Chakrabartis, that you know, people who pass as as racialized people, that these are actually caste supremacist people, you know, people who are beneficiaries of caste system. I also want to say, Zain, one last thing that I want to say that is really yeah. important is, you know, when South Asians um, here organize, and this is a conversation that I've had with some indigenous friends of mine as well here, right, indigenous to North America, that when when South Asians organize because you know abolition has become a thing, right? Thanks to the work of black activists and scholars, but it has been co-opted in very hollow ways by South Asians, I would say. So when South Asians here on, on, you know, on our campuses, when they are organizing for abolition, remind them, you know, whether or not you're South Asian, remind them that caste is the oldest structure of incarceration. You cannot be extremely casteist. You cannot be an upper caste person who has never given a moment of re- moment of reflection on caste and talk about abolition and draw on Angela Davis and all of that. No, you become you you begin with Savitri Bai Pule. You begin with uh, you know Jyoti Rao Pule. You begin with Ambedkar. You begin with you know this Bhakti movement of 14th century that gave you um, you know anti casteist knowledge, right? Like just to remember that you cannot fight for abolition without also dismantling caste because this is where it started or one of the structures where it where it consolidated. 
Well, thank you so much, Shaista. I think you've given us a lot to think about um, that is, has to do with a long history, but also a very urgent and ongoing one. And I do really like your emphasis that the history of casteism, also the history of anti-casteism, that like one cannot despair in the face of structural historical violences because the, the resistance to that has also yeah. had a long history. Um, so thank you very much. And Chaista, I hope we get a chance to hang out in person, maybe in a, in a couple of years time. Hopefully sooner than that, when you come to San Diego. Yes, I hope so. Anyways, thanks so much to our listeners. For, um, take care of yourselves. If you haven't done it already, please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast and take care of yourselves. PhDiva's podcast has been going strong for five years. We are more excited than ever about the world of podcasting as academics. We want to keep bringing you great content. And to do that, we need your help with the cost of production. That's right, Zai. Through Patreon, you will support our 2020 vision for PhDiva's podcast. Better features, new equipment, and you'll get exclusive access to original content like the bloopers reel for this ad, by the way, and our reading list and outtake. Propose an episode. Get a special shout out. See how exciting this is all going to be? Help us take the podcast to the next level. Click on the Patreon link to find out the many ways that you can support us. And as always, even if you can't support us financially, you can always help out by following us on Facebook and Twitter under Page Divas Podcast. It helps a lot when you rate us and write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.